this morning uh, we are in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And uh, this is one of those portions of James where he wants to give a reminder to his readers. And it's been taught a number of different ways from different perspectives. But as I was just reading through it this week, especially the first 13 verses, it was just a reminder to me to give honor where honor is due. And um, and I think that was James' heart because what he realized as he observed the church himself was that there were times where there was too much partiality, uh, where certain people were given honor and other people weren't given honor. And I remember a number of years ago I was in Europe and I had to get to the train station to go to a city in southern England. I was up in Wales. And um, the fastest way for me to get to the station was to take a bus that would drop me off in front of the station. And so the hotel I was in, I walked right out. There was a bus stop. I got on the bus and it would take me to the, the train station there in Cardiff. And then uh, from there I could get down uh, to, to London And as I got on the bus, it was crowded. There was just really a lot of people, which is normal transportation issues when you're in Europe. And as I was making my way back, I had my my luggage with me, my my roller bag and and my backpack, and I was looking for space, and I kept going back and back. And finally, I got towards the back of the bus, and I noticed that there was an aisle uh, that uh, there was just one person. And I didn't pay a whole lot of attention. I put my bag away, and... And I sat down and I looked over to my left and there was a young man that was there next to me. And uh, I don't know if he was deformed from birth or whether it was from an accident, but just to look at his face was uh, was really horrifying. And uh, he was uh, he wasn't dressed very well, kind of dirty clothes. His hair was kind of matted down and and I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. And then as we were making subsequent stops, more people were getting on. And so people were standing in the aisles and they had the little loops that you hold on to. And uh, there was an elderly lady that came uh, down where I was at. And I got up and I said, you're welcome to my seat. And she looked over at this young man. He happened to turn and look at her. And she looked at him and she goes, I'm not going to sit next to that bum. And I, I remember just looking at that young man's face that was already uh, terribly disfigured and you could just see his countenance fell and, and I sat back down and as the bus went forward, I leaned over and I told him, I said, young man, I said, I'm privileged and uh, more than happy to sit next to you. And he reached over and he put his hand on my hand and his hand was kind of trembling. And he began to share his story with me, really what his life had been like. And uh, he had been in an accident uh, as a young boy uh, in an automobile accident. Both of his parents and his other two siblings had been killed. He was the only survivor, didn't have any other family. His, he had actually gone through the windshield of the car and that's what had disfigured his face. And he was on state assistance. And he said that he sometimes lived in the streets. Sometimes he could find a shelter where he could go and he could live. And and he said, you know, it's just been it's been really difficult for me. And I said, well, 
can I pray for you? And he said, oh, please do. And I prayed for this young man. And when we got to the train station, he got off the bus where I got off and I was met there by another team that was coming out of Calvary Chapel in Westminster there in London. And I introduced them to this young man. And you know, it was so awesome because he gave them a little bit of his story. I shared some of his story. And the folks that brought the team there, they said, you come with us. We're going to take you back to the church with us. And I found out later that he ended up staying there for a number of months and was ministered to by the church. The story that I share with you is important because it was a reminder to me that oftentimes we look at the outside or the externals of someone and we immediately make assumptions. We, we, we sometimes even contrive in our own minds in our own thought life of who they are, or what they are, or where they've been. But this is one of those situations where it was an opportunity to give honor where honor is due. And the Lord just reminded me that that I need to give honor to 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 those that are around me, even if appearance-wise they don't look very appealing to me. And so James, as he begins this second chapter in his little epistle, he says, My brethren. And so we know who he's talking to. We know who he's addressing. He's addressing us, right? We are the brethren. And that, that word brethren is a word that is not bound to particular gender, so it could be brethren and sisters. But he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And and this is so important because he uses this term, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he puts the emphasis on faith. Now this is a theme that runs through James' epistle. Is this whole idea of, of faith. Faith without works is dead. The substance of our faith is not just what we know in our mind, what we have in our heart, but it's what we do in action. That's the real substance of our faith. And so he says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And the word that he uses there is, is an interesting word because it's this idea of me being selective about who I'm going to express my faith to. And my faith, when it's being expressed, should be, as James says, something that reflects the glory of the Lord. So as I'm living out my faith day in and day out, day in and day out, it should be a a mirror image or a reflection of God's glory. He says, for if there should come into your assembly. And so he sets the stage in verse 1, but now he's going to give some examples. And he says, look, if, if someone should come into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in the good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The last part of verse 4 is so significant because he takes partiality and he looks at it from the perspective that when it's being shown, it is something that's evil. It's not honoring to God. 
He says, so if you have a wealthy individual, then he comes in, he says, and you're, you're immediately drawn to him for carnal reasons or for, for financial reasons, and you're drawn to that man, and yet someone who comes in that's lesser than that, you want to cast them aside. You don't want to give them honor. You don't want to elevate them to the same place that you would with the one with the gold ring and the fine apparel. Partiality can be such a devastating thing in the lives of people. Maybe all of us at some point in our lives were uh, experienced partiality where others were shown favor over us. Maybe we were even cast aside as not being good enough or not being worthy enough or not being talented enough. Maybe you were one of those individuals when they were picking teams You know, when you were in school, maybe you were the last one to be picked. Anybody experience that? Nobody's going to raise their hands this morning. But there there are times when we see favor, we see partiality. You know, I grew up in a home where partiality was shown towards my older brother. And it was something that, that for years... I not only struggled with, but even into my adult life, I was bitter about it. Because I thought, why isn't there a fairness? Why isn't there equality? And there was even a point in my life when I went to my mom and I, I, I told my mom, I said, I feel like I'm, I'm something less than what you expect me to be. And what it created with me is rebellion. I became rebellious and my attitude was, well, I'm not only going to show you, but I'm going to show everybody. And it caused me to be driven, but not in a good sense, but in a bad sense. Because there was partiality. When Millie and I got married and we started having our kids, one of the things that I was determined was, all my kids were always going to be treated exactly the same. If I bought something for one of my for my daughter, then I was going to buy something for my son. I never wanted them to ever feel like that there was there were they were subpar, somehow less than the other. We do the same thing with our grandkids. And it's important because what James is saying is as an expression of faith. If I'm really going to express my faith, I should have the desire, regardless of how someone looks or how they act or or their appearance, any of those things, I want to treat them equally. Isn't that exactly what our Lord does? While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even after we got saved, how does He look at us? The Word of God says that He looks at us without partiality. So He looks at us all the same. I don't know about you, but that's comforting to me. And especially when I came to the Lord, when I got saved and, and I began to study the Word of God. And I remember getting to James and, and just honing in on this whole thing of partiality. And God was able to bring forgiveness and deliverance into my life and for me to realize that even though as a kid growing up there was partiality shown to another that the Lord didn't treat me that way the Lord was faithful he says in verse 5 listen my beloved brethren there's that that word again literally 
You're my brethren. I want you to understand this as the church, as believers. And the word listen there, it's a great word because it's powerful. It's this idea of hearkening. It's the the trumpet would be sounded when someone was coming that that was royalty and, and they would sound the trumpet and it was to get the attention of everyone. And what James is saying, is says, I really want your attention here. I really want you to hear what I have to say. He said, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? I uh, made an adjustment in the number of promises. I always believed there was about 4,672, but I just found out recently, I was listening to a study by Greg Laurie, and he said there's over 7,000. So uh, I missed uh, around 3,000 of those promises. But here's one of them. Here's one of them. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich? And the word poor, when you see that word, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? What is the first thing that, that you think about? For most of us, it's about money. But when you go back and you look at the Beatitudes, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He uses the exact same word that James uses here. But poor, not in the sense that they, they, they're deprived or they're something less or they've missed out. But it's the concept or the idea that God will take from any part of life, any individual, regardless of their standing, and He will bless them and He will make them rich. He says, God has not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? Now, this was something that Paul would address in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. And he warned about bringing your, your differences or your complaints or your problems before worldly court as believers. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. So resolve it amongst yourselves. The idea was this, that, that if there is an issue that arises between two believers, that if they go to the Word of God, they can allow the justice of God and the judgment of God to bring peace, to resolve whatever that conflict or whatever that difference is. And the Word of God is capable of doing that. And so he says, do not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. In other words, if you're going into into court, you're dragging the Lord in there with you. And what a poor testimony that can be. A number of years ago, working as a general contractor, I did a job for a a Christian family. I did a remodel for them. And uh, I always try to give a, a, a decent price There were a number of changes that had been made and they kept making changes and adding things and I absorbed a lot of that. And then when it came time for final payment, they decided, and it was almost half of the payment for the job, they told me that they weren't going to pay me because they were dissatisfied with the work. And so I said to them, I said, well, how can I make that right? 
you know, I knew the work was good, and I said, but, you know, I, I want to try to resolve this because I had a crew, I need to pay them. The bottom line is they kept putting me off, putting me off, they didn't like this, and I'd ch- make changes, I was doing things, and this went on for months. Matter of fact, it went on for almost six months. When I got to the end of it, I just said, you know, you really need to, need to pay me, and they said, well, we're just not going to do that, and, it became personal, the personal attacks against me, and just, you know, and I was just like, wow. And I had a partner that was working with me at that time, and he said, well, you know what, I'm just going to go, we're, I'm just going to file a lawsuit. And I said, you know, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't think that's the route we need to go. And so we absorbed the loss. Now, the important thing about that was those people, they never, they never changed. They went on their way and, you know, it was between them and the Lord. But the testimony to the rest of our employees, that's where we began to see God doing something awesome. Because one by one, they came and they just said, you know what? Pastor, we know that you absorbed all this loss and so, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna pay us and, and we just, we don't want you to do that. We want to join in with you because we feel like what you did was the right thing. That's when we can give testimony to God and, and realize that we don't have to dishonor the Lord. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. We know that that commandment has been given in a number of places. It's given in the Old Testament. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. Matter of fact, he said it's the most significant thing that you can do is the way that you care about and that you love others, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says you do well. And and that is the idea that you're doing something that is not just good for you, but it's it's honoring God. It's a good thing to do that. You ever had a bad neighbor? Maybe you have a bad neighbor. I don't know. But I mean, I've experienced that. And sometimes it's hard to love those, though, that bad neighbor. I had a bad neighbor when I lived in the desert that, um, he would, uh, he would kick my trash can over and dump all my trash out in the street. And I'd have to go out, I'd be going to the office, and I'd go out, and there was my trash can on trash day, and he'd kick it over, and there was trash everywhere, and I knew he was the one who was doing it. And I'd pick up the trash and put it back up, and, and then he'd be on the other side of the fence. He'd never look over the fence, but he would yell at me and all kinds of things, and he'd get angry and, you know, obscenities. And the 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 neat thing about all of that was his wife and son, we were able to lead them to the Lord. They came to Christ. And later he did too. But I would have enjoyed it sooner because I got tired of picking up my trash. He kept kicking the trash can over. But the idea is that we have to love those that are unlovely. And that love of God, I think, is capable of changing hearts and changing minds and transforming lives. Because when we associate ourselves with God, we associate ourselves with the glory of God. The glory, the power of His presence. 
Luke 24, 26 says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into His glory? I mean, Jesus took the brunt not only of criticism and ridicule and shame, but He took all of the sin of you and I upon Himself. And He took it to the cross. Paul in Romans 6, 4 says there, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, He says, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And so the new life that we have is a life that says, you know, I'm not going to show partiality. If the rich man comes in and the poor man comes in, if they walked in together, I'm going to treat them both exactly the same. But if the rich man came in by himself, I'm not going to give him preferential treatment. I'm going to minister to him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to share with him just as I would anyone else. And I'm going to make sure that in so doing, I'm not only dishonoring the Lord, but I'm not dishonoring a man. So he says... In verse 9, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So you have this whole section here where James now takes this whole idea of partiality and he correlates it with sin. It's sinful behavior. And and he wants his readers to understand that because it is sinful to do that, that... They're convicted by the law as transgressor. What is a transgressor? Well, he's a breaker of the law. Now, we all know that we've broken the law. So you have the Ten Commandments. All of us have broken at least one or more of the Ten Commandments. There is no one other than Jesus Christ who has been capable of not breaking the law of God. So we break the law of God, but as a result of that, God uses the breaking of that law to show me something. What does He want me to see? Why is there such conviction when, when I sin? Well, it's for the purpose of me realizing, first of all, I am a sinner, but secondly, I need a remedy for my sin. I need someone or something to happen in my life to deal with that sin. So the breaking of the law, God uses that, that transgression, to show me, first of all, that I am a sinner. I know I've witnessed to countless thousands of people through the years, and and I'll say to someone, well, you know you're a sinner. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. And they'll even laugh about it. I've even had guys make jokes about it. And jokes about going to hell. And yeah, I'm just going to be there with all my buddies. And we'll just party and, and just making light of that. But, but you ask someone if, they're, if they have sin or if they're a sinner. And they'll say yes. But the law was there for the purpose of bringing conviction and saying, now you have to understand that because you've broken the law, you have a remedy. There's someone that you can go to that can 
forgive you of that sin. And he says, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So once again, and this is so powerful what James is doing. He says this, even with the law, the Ten Commandments, God doesn't show any partiality. There's no sort of sin or kind of sin. Sin is sin, right? And so even in the Ten Commandments, God is saying, I'm not going to show partiality. I'm not going to put degrees on sin. So if you don't honor your father and your mother, that's not any different than being a murderer. Wow, that's heavy. If you don't love the Lord your God and honor Him, that's not any different than than being a murderer. Breaking the law is breaking the law. And so, he says, I'm not going to show partiality in that. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So that's that verse that drives home that point that with God, there's no partiality. Sin is sin. There's no little ones and there's no big ones. There just is sin. And sin is separation. So speak and do so as those who will be judged by the law of... And I love this. He says the law of liberty. Now that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because the law is what's condemning. The law is what brings judgment into our lives. But what James is revealing to them is this, is that if the law is aptly understood, and and if we see it for how God intended it, then it brings us to liberty. Because the tense here in the original Greek is pointing to the future. So it becomes... A form of liberty. When we understand the purpose of the law and the action that the law has in one's life. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's fascinating to me that in verse 13, after talking about partiality and talking about the law, He inserts this idea of mercy. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? To show mercy towards someone. Well, it is the idea that I could be justified in saying something or judging you or being unkind to you. But mercy says, because of God and Jesus in my life, I wouldn't give you what you deserve. I want something better for you. I want what God wants for you. And God shows mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ, right? Because we deserved hell, and God says, no, I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to send my Son. He's going to die on the cross for you, and so I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience freedom and to be set free. In verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, 
a lot of times when this chapter is taught, the first 13 verses is taught as, well, this is a separate thing. This, this, is, this is a separate sermon. And so the second half of the chapter, that's another sermon. But in order to have the continuity of where James is coming from, you have to think in terms of everything that he's saying here. So there's actually not a natural break here in the original Greek. He's continuing the same thought. He says, what does it profit my brethren? And we know that because who is he addressing? He's still talking to the brethren. He's still talking to believers. He says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And this goes to the heart of partiality. If I have true faith, then what are my works or the outward expression of that? What is it going to be? Well, I'm not going to be showing partiality. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to recognize even my own sin and realize that I have to take that to Jesus and I have to seek for forgiveness. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Where is the profit? What profit is he talking about? He's talking about profitable faith that produces works. So he says, a brother or a sister. So he's not even talking about out in the world. He's addressing the brother and he says, let's start within the fellowship or the household of God. And he says, so they, they come to you and they're naked and they're destitute of daily food. And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled. But you do not give them the things that they need. In other words, it's just that. It's words. It's just empty words. I'm just, I'm just saying, hey, we're praying for you. And that's a good thing to pray for people, but sometimes it's not just prayer that they need, right? Sometimes they need someone to actually step in and physically help them or to provide food for them or maybe to help them out with their electric bill or whatever it might be. There's a practical aspect to faith that goes beyond just this idea that I know Jesus or I believe in Jesus, but now am I willing to step up and act in His behalf? And one of you says, Depart in peace, be warm, be filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? He doesn't say, what does it profit you or what does it profit them? But what is the profit of your faith? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that word there, dead, literally means it's lifeless. There's no expression of life that comes from it. He says, but if someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And there's always been this controversy uh, in the church, theologically and actually doctrinally as well, of, of this whole thing of salvation by works. In other words, you have to work for your salvation. What James is saying here, and he's not contradicting the Apostle Paul, 
because Paul was very adamant about the fact that salvation is by faith alone. And so James is not making an argument that you have to work for your salvation, but what he is saying is this. If you have genuine faith, if you truly know Jesus Christ, it's going to produce works in your life. There's something that's going to come out of you that's going to be more than just words that you speak. It's going to be things that you do. I was reading an article this week about uh, the millennial generation within the church. And it was really a, a, a fascinating article because they said that what they're discovering now in, in a number of surveys that have been done, religious organizations, is that young people that are coming up in the church, they want an opportunity. They want to see some means or some way by which they can take their faith and they put it into practical use. And it said that, that within that group, within that millennial group, that a lot of organizations, helps types organizations, that they're drawing most heavily from that age group because they wanna, they wanna engage. They wanna be engaged in their community. They wanna, they wanna help. They wanna, they wanna do something that is, is more than just things that are being said, and so they're very hands-on. And I thought, you know, that's awesome because that's exactly what James is talking about. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. So why does he throw that in there? Verse 19, what is that all about? He's saying, look, it's not enough just to say, I believe in God. Satan and the demons of hell believe in God. They know He exists. And they believe He is all that He says that He is. So Satan is not an atheist. Nor are the demons of hell atheists or agnostics. They believe. And they are engaged in warfare to try to diminish and overthrow the power of God and even in the life of the believer. And he says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do you really want to know that? Do you really believe that? I do. Faith is going to produce something. Something is going to be manifest through faith. And once again, as James does often in his little epistle, he uses examples. He says, I'm not going to just talk theoretically. Let me give you some examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You remember the story? Going up the mountain, going to make sacrifice before God. Is his son Isaac with him? They're going up there. At one point, you know, they realize they've got the, the wood for the fire and, and they're, they're building the, you know, and, and Isaac's saying, yeah, but where's the sacrifice? <laughs> he was the sacrifice. Even to the point that Abraham was willing to express his faith to the point that he takes up the knife and he's ready to plunge it into the chest of his son. Some would say, man, what a, what a brutal test God put him to. But sometimes our faith 
is put to those types of tests. It can be in the form of disease. We have a pastor just north of us up in Yuba City that was diagnosed with kidney cancer. He just went through an operation and had one-third of, his, of one of his kidneys um, removed. And didn't have any idea, just went to the doctor, had an examination, and he said, hey, you've got cancer. And the first mobilization about that was it went out to, on the pastor's list server and we, we just began to pray. You know, putting faith in action. You know, you may have a situation this morning that you're dealing with. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a health situation. I know this week, Millie's been battling with some terrible health issues all week long. And every morning and every evening, it's just prayer, it's prayer, it's prayer. And just saying, Lord, we, 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 we come to you because we believe that you're able and you're capable and we're just going to keep doing that. And it doesn't mean that you exclude doctors or medicine or those things, but, but it's just putting faith into to action. You know, it's reaching out and helping someone. Someone that, that has a need. And realizing that in so doing, we're saying, my faith is more than just words that I speak. Verse 20, 22, he says, Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made complete? Complete. So, my faith, your faith, I want to make sure that it has works that go along with it so that it's complete. There's something complete it's the complete package. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now that's the difficult verse right there. This is where everybody gets tripped up. Because they say, well, justified, that's salvation. Not always. That's not always how that word is used. There is justification for me to be a certain way or to do certain things or to act a certain way. And so what he is saying is this. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. What is the justification? The justification is not applied to the works. It's applied to the faith. So the thing that justifies my faith, the thing that, that it recognizes that there's real faith in my life is by the works that it produces. Because you go back up to the earlier verse where he says, some will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the justification that he's talking about. So my faith is justified by what it produces, what's coming out of it. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So he wraps it up there in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, 
So if I don't have the Spirit in me, the Holy Spirit in me, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, right? We understand that? There's, there's no spiritual life in me. I have physical life. I have Zoe, but I, 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 don't, I don't have spiritual life. There's not, there's not the Ruach. There's not the, the Numa. There's not the, the very breath and the very presence of God in my life. He says, so faith without works is dead also. So if it's true that the body without the spirit is dead because there's no activity, there's no working of the Holy Spirit, so faith without works is dead because the works are the product of a faith that's being driven by the Holy Spirit. How does my faith grow? How do I get stronger in faith? How do I... How do I see my faith expand beyond maybe just words that I speak into action that I do? Well, it's by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who strengthens my faith. Gives me the ability to, to press on, to press forward, to go forward per the will of God. Per, per the grace of God. One of the things that is interesting in this chapter is that for James, even in his own life, he would be put to the test of a faith that was more than just words, a faith that would be manifested by works. We know that the apostles, their ministry after the death of Jesus expanded to the whole known world of their day. All of them were martyred in some way or another. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, there receiving a revelation from God as he was caught up into heaven. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was beaten mercilessly until he died. But their faith was still intact in that their desire was to manifest, truly to manifest that they were heirs of the kingdom. That they were joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Remember that earlier statement that I made in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come. You blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I love the words of Jesus in Luke 12 when he says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Man. So faith as it's lived out, as it's expressed, as it's manifest, is going to produce works that are reflective of the glory of God, but also that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because those acts of faith, those works, are not centered on me. It's not, it's not who I am or what I'm doing, but it's what God is doing and accomplishing through me.